Chapter Sixteen, Part Two of the Black Bag. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Eaton. The Black Bag by Louis Joseph Vance. Chapter Sixteen, Part Two. Kirkwood sped his journeyings with an unspoken malediction and collected himself to cope with a situation which was to prove hardly more happy for them than the espionage they had just eluded the primal flush of triumph which had saturated the american's humour on this signal success proved but fictive and transitory when inquiry of the station attendants educed the information that the two earliest trains to be obtained were the five o nine for dunkirk and the five thirty seven for ostend a minimum delay of four hours was to be endured in the face of many contingent features singularly unpleasant to contemplate the station waiting-room was on the point of closing for the night and kirkwood already alarmed by the rapid ebb of the money he had had of calendar dared not subject his finances to the strain of a night's lodging at one of ghent's hotels he found himself forced to be cruel to be kind to the girl and Dorothy's cheerful acquiescence to their sole alternative of tramping the street until daybreak did nothing to alleviate Kirkwood's exasperation. It was permitted them to occupy a bench outside the station. There the girl, her head pillowed on the treasure bag, napped uneasily, while Kirkwood plodded restlessly to and fro, up and down the platform, communing with the shade of care and addling his poor weary wits with the problem of the future not so much his own as the future of the unhappy child for whose welfare he had assumed responsibility dark for both of them in his understanding to-morrow loomed darkest for her not until the grey formless light of the dawn dusk was wavering over the land did he cease his perambulations then a gradual stir of life in the city streets together with the appearance of a station porter or two opening the waiting-rooms and preparing them against the traffic of the day, warned him that he must rouse his charge. He paused and stood over her, reluctant to disturb her rest such as it was, his heart torn with compassion for her, his soul embittered by the cruel irony of their estate. If what he understood were true, a king's ransom was secreted within the cheap imitation leather satchel which served her for a pillow but it availed her nothing for her comfort. If what he believed were true, she was absolute mistress of that treasure of jewels, yet that night she had been forced to sleep on a hard, uncushioned bench in the open air, and this morning he must waken her to the life of a hunted thing. A week ago she had had, at her command, every luxury known to the civilised world. Today she was friendless, but for his inefficient, worthless self and in a strange land. A week ago... Had he known her then, he had been free to tell her of his love, to offer her the protection of his name, as well as his devotion. Today he was an all but penniless vagabond, and there could be no dishonour deeper than to let her know the nature of his heart's desire. Was ever lover hedged from a declaration to his mistress by circumstances so hateful, so untoward? He could have raged and railed against his fate like any madman, for he desired her greatly and she was very lovely in his sight. If her night's rest had been broken, and but a mockery, she showed few signs of it. The faint, wan complexion of fatigue 
seemed only to enhance the beauty of her maidenhood. Her lips were as fresh and desirous as the dewy petals of a crimson rose. Beneath her eyes soft shadows lurked, where her lashes lay tremulous upon her cheeks of satin. She was to him, of all created things, the most wonderful, the most desirable. The temptation of his longing seemed more than he could long withstand, but resist he must, or part forever with any title to her consideration, or his own. He shut his teeth and knotted his brows in a transport of desire to touch, if only with his fingertips, the woven wonder of her hair. And thus she saw him, when, without warning, she awoke. Bewilderment at first informed the wide brown eyes, then, as their drowsiness vanished, a little laughter, a little tender mirth. "'Good morning, Sir Knight of the Sombre Countenance,' she cried, standing up. "'Am I so utterly disreputable that you find it necessary to frown on me so darkly?' He shook his head, smiling. "'I know I'm a fright,' she asserted vigorously, shaking out the folds of her pleated skirt. "'And as for my hat, it will never be on straight. But then you wouldn't know.' "'It seems all right,' he replied vacantly. "'Then please to try to look a little happier, "'since you find me quite presentable.' "'I do.' "'Without lifting her bended head, "'she looked up laughing, not ill-pleased. "'You'd say so, really?' "'Commonplace enough, this banter, "'this pitiful endeavour to be oblivious "'of their common misery. "'But like the look she gave him, "'her words rang in his head "'like potent fumes of wine. "'He turned away.' utterly disconcerted for the time, knowing only that he must overcome his weakness. Far down the railway tracks there rose a murmuring that waxed to a rumbling roar. A passing porter answered Kirkwood's inquiry. It was the night boat train from Ostend. He picked up their bags and drew the girl into the waiting room, troubled by a sickening foreboding. Through the window they watched the train roll in and stop. Among others alighted, smirking the unspeakable hobbs he lifted his hat and bowed jauntily to the waiting-room window making it plain that his keen eyes had discovered them instantly kirkwood's heart sank with the hopelessness of it all if the railway directorates of europe conspired against them what chance had they if the night-boat train from ostend had only had the decency to be twenty-five minutes late Instead of arriving promptly on the minute of 4.45, they too might have escaped by the 5.09 for Dunkirk and Calais. There remained but a single untried ruse in his bag of tricks. Mercifully, it might suffice. Miss Callender, said Kirkwood from his heart, just as soon as I get you home safe and sound, I am going to take a day off, hunting up that little villain and flay him alive. In the meantime, I forgot to dine last night and am reminded that we had better forage for breakfast. Hobbs dogged them at a safe distance while they sallied forth, and in a neighbouring street discovered an early bird bakery. Here they were able to purchase rolls steaming from the oven, fresh pats of golden butter wrapped in clean lettuce leaves, and milk in twin bottles, all of which they prosaically carried with them back to the station, lacking leisure as they did to partake of the food before train time. Without attempting concealment, Hobbs he knew was eavesdropping round the corner of the door, Kirkwood purchased at the ticket window passages on the Dunkirk train. Mr. Hobbs promptly flattered him by imitation, and so jealous of his luck was Kirkwood by this time grown, through continual disappointment, that he did not even let the girl into his plans until they were aboard the 509. 
in a compartment all to themselves. Then, having with his own eyes seen Mr. Hobbs dodge on to the third compartment in the rear of the same carriage, Kirkwood astonished the girl by requesting her to follow him, and together they left by the door opposite, that by which they had entered. The engine was running up and down a scale of staccato snorts in preparation for the race, and the cars were on the edge of moving, couplings clanking, wheels a-groan, ere Mr. Hobbs condescended to join them between the tracks. Wearily disheartened, Kirkwood reopened the door, flung the bags in, and helped the girl back into their despised compartment. The quicker route to England via Ostend was now out of the question. As for himself, he waited for a brace of seconds, eyeing wickedly the ubiquitous Hobbs, who had popped back into his compartment, but stood ready to pop out again at the least encouragement. In the meantime, he was pleased to shake a friendly foot at Mr. Kirkwood, thrusting that member out through the half-open door. Only the timely departure of the train, compelling him to rejoin Dorothy at once, if at all, prevented the American from adding murder to the already noteworthy catalogue of his high crimes and misdemeanours. Their simple meal, consumed to the ultimate drop and crumb, while the Dunkirk train meandered serenely through a sunny, smiling Flemish countryside, somewhat revived their jaded spirits. After all, they were young, enviably dowered with youth's exuberant elasticity of mood. The world was bright in the dawning, the night had fled, leaving naught but an evil memory. Best of all things, they were together. Tacitly, they were agreed that somehow the future would take care of itself, and all be well with them. For a time they laughed and chattered, pretending that the present held no cares or troubles, but soon the girl, nestling her head in the corner of the dingy cushions, was smiling ever more drowsily on Kirkwood, and presently she slept in good earnest, the warm blood ebbing and flowing beneath the exquisite texture of her cheeks, the ghost of an unconscious smile quivering about the sensitive scarlet mouth, the breeze through the open window at her side, wantoning at will in the sunlight witchery of her hair and Kirkwood, worn with sleepless watching, dwelt in longing upon the dear innocent allure of her, until the ache in his heart had grown well-nigh insupportable, then instinctively turned his gaze upwards, searching his heart, reading the faith and desire of it, so that at length knowledge and understanding came to him, of his weakness and strength, and the clean love that he bore for her, and gladdened he sat, dreaming in waking the same clear dreams that modelled her unconscious lips, secretly for laughter and the joy of living. When Dunkirk halted their progress, they were obliged to alight and change cars, Hobbs a discreetly sinister shadow at the end of the platform. By schedule they were to arrive in Calais about the middle of the forenoon, with a wait of three hours to be bridged before the departure of the Dover packet. That would be an anxious time the prospect of it rendered both Dorothy and Kirkwood doubly anxious throughout this final stage of their flight. In three hours anything could happen, or be brought about. Neither could forget that it was quite within the bounds of possibilities for Calendar to be awaiting them in Calais. Presuming that Hobbs had been acute enough to guess their plans, and advise his employer by telegraph, the latter could readily have anticipated their arrival, whether by sea in the Brigantine, or by land, taking the direct route via Brussels and Lille. If such proved to be the case, it was scarcely sensible to count upon the arch-adventurer contenting himself with a waiting role like Hobbs. With such unhappy apprehensions for a stimulant, between them the man and the girl contrived a makeshift counter-stratagem, or, 
it were more accurate to say that Kirkwood proposed it, while Dorothy rejected, disputed, and at length accepted it, albeit with sad misgivings, for it involved a separation that might not prove temporary. Together they could never escape the surveillance of Mr. Hobbs. Parted, he would be obliged to follow one or the other. The task of misleading the Alethea's mate Kirkwood undertook, delegating to the girl the duty of escaping when he could provide her the opportunity of keeping under cover until the hour of sailing and then proceeding to England with the Gladstone bag, alone if Kirkwood was unable or thought it inadvisable to join her on the boat. In furtherance of this design, a majority of the girl's belongings were transferred from her travelling bag to Kirkwood's, the Gladstone taking their place, and the young man provided her with voluminous instructions, a revolver which she did not know how to handle, and declared she would never use for any consideration, and enough money to pay for her accommodation at the Terminus Hotel near the pier, and for two passages to London. It was agreed that she should secure the steamer booking, lest Kirk would be delayed until the last moment. These arrangements concluded, the pair of blessed idiots sat steeped in melancholy silence, avoiding each other's eyes until the train drew in at the Gare Central Calais. In profound silence, too, they left their compartment and passed through the station into the quiet sun-drenched streets of the seaport, Hobbs hovering solicitously in the offing. Without comment or visible relief of mind, they were aware that their fears had been without apparent foundation. They saw no sign of calendar, striker, or Mulready. The circumstance, however, counted for nothing. One or all of the adventurers might arrive in Calais at any minute. Momentarily, more miserable as the time of parting drew nearer, dumb with unhappiness, they turned aside from the main thoroughfares of the city, leaving the business section, and gained the sleepier side streets, bordered by the residences of the proletariat, where for blocks none but children were to be seen, and of them but few, quaint, sober little bodies playing almost noiselessly in their door-yards. At length Kirkwood spoke. Let's make it the corner, he said, without looking at the girl. It's a short block to the next street. You hurry to the terminus and lock yourself in your room. Have the management book both passages. Don't run the risk of going to the pier yourself. I'll make things interesting for Mr. Hobbs and join you as soon as I can, if I can. "'You must,' replied the girl. "'I shan't go without you.' "'But do Miss Callender,' he exclaimed aghast. "'I don't care. I know I agreed,' she declared mutinously. "'But I won't. I can't. Remember? I shall wait for you. "'But, but perhaps, if you have to stay, it will be because there's danger, won't it? "'And what would you think of me if I deserted you then? Af "'After all you've, you've done?' Please don't waste time arguing whether you come at one today, tomorrow, or a week from tomorrow. I shall be waiting, you may be sure. Goodbye. They had turned the corner walking slowly side by side. Hobbs for the first time caught off his guard and dropped behind more than half a long block. But now Kirkwood's quick sidelong glance discovered the mate in the act of taking alarm and quickening his pace. Nonetheless, the American was at the time barely conscious of anything other than a wholly unexpected furtive pressure of the girl's gloved fingers on his own. Goodbye, she whispered. He caught at her hand, protesting. Dorothy, goodbye, she repeated breathlessly, with a queer little catch in her voice. God be with you, Philip, and 
and send you safely back to me and she was running away dumbfounded with dismay seeing in a flash how all his plans might be set at naught by this her unforeseen insubordination he took a step or two after her but she was fleet of foot and remembering hobbs he halted by this time the mate too was running kirkwood could hear the heavy pounding of his clumsy feet already dorothy had almost gained the farther corner as she whisked round it with a flutter of skirts kirkwood dodged hastily behind a gate-post i thought later hobbs appeared head down chest out eyes straining for sight of his quarry pelting along for dear life as rounding the corner he stretched out in swifter stride kirkwood was inspired to put a spoke in his wheel and a foot thrust suddenly out from behind the gate-post accomplished his purpose with more success than he had dared anticipate stumbling the mate plunged headlong arms and legs asprawl and the momentum of his pace though checked carried him along the sidewalk face downwards a full yard ere he could stay himself kirkwood stepped out of the gateway and sheered off as hobbs picked himself up something which he did rather slowly as if in a daze without comprehension of the cause of his misfortune and for a moment he stood pulling his wits together and swaying as though on the point of resuming his rudely interrupted chase when the noise of kirkwood's heels brought him about face in a twinkling oh it's you he snarled in a temper as vicious as his countenance and both of these were much the worse for wear and tear myself admitted kirkwood fairly and then in a gleam of humour weren't you looking for me his rage seemed to take the little cockney and shake him by the throat he trembled from head to foot his face shockingly congested and spat out dust and fragments of lurid blasphemy like an infuriated cat of a sudden where's the girl he sputtered thickly as his quick shifting eyes for the first time noted dorothy's absence miss calendar has other business none with you i've taken the liberty of stopping you because i have a word or two oh you have have you god strike me blind but i've a word for you too and over that bag and look nippy or i'll make you pay for what you've done to me i'll make you pay he iterated hoarsely edging closer and it over or you've got another guess kirkwood began but saved his breath in deference to an imperative demand on him for instant defensive action to some extent he had underestimated the brute courage of the fellow the violent desperate courage that is distilled of anger in men of his kind despising him deeming him incapable of any overt act of villainy kirkwood had been a little less wary than he would have been with calendar or mulready hobbs had seen more of the craven type which strike a grace so conspicuously but now the american was to be taught discrimination to learn that if stryker's nature was like a snake's for low cunning and deviousness hobbs's soul was the soul of a viper almost imperceptibly he had advanced upon kirkwood almost insensibly his right hand had moved towards his chest now with a movement marvellously deft it had slipped in and out of his breast pocket and a six-inch blade of tarnished steel was winging towards kirkwood's throat with the speed of light instinctively he stepped back as instinctively he guarded with his right forearm lifting the hand that held the satchel the knife catching in his sleeve scratched the arm beneath painfully and simultaneously was twisted from the mate's grasp while in his surprise kirkwood's grip on the bag handle relaxed 
it was torn forcibly from his fingers just as he received a heavy blow on his chest from the mate's fist he staggered back by the time he had recovered from the shock hobbs was a score of feet away the satchel tucked under his arm his body bent almost double running like a jack-rabbit ere kirkwood could get under way in pursuit the mate had dodged out of sight round the corner when the american caught sight of him again he was far down the block and bettering his pace with every jump he was approaching also some six or eight good citizens of calais men of the labouring class at a guess their attention attracted by his frantic flight they stopped to wonder one or two moved as though to intercept him and he doubled out into the middle of the street with the quickness of thought an instant later he shot round another corner and disappeared the natives streaming after in hot chase electrified by the inspiring strains of stop thief or its french equivalent kirkwood cheering them on in the same wild cry followed to the farther street and there paused so winded and weak with laughter that he was fain to catch at a fence picket for support standing thus he saw other denizens of calais spring as if from the ground miraculously to swell the hue and cry and a dumpling of a gendarme materialised from nowhere at all to fall in behind the rabble waving his sword above his head and screaming at the top of his lungs the while his fat legs twinkled for all the world like thick sausage links marvellously animated the mob straggled round yet another corner and was gone its clamour diminished on the still spring air and kirkwood recovering abandoned mr hobb to the justice of the high gods and the french system of jurisprudence at least he hoped the latter would take an interest in the case if haply hobbs were laid by the heels and went his way rejoicing as for the scratch on his arm it was nothing as he presently demonstrated to his complete satisfaction in the seclusion of a chance saint fiacre kirkwood commissioning it to drive him to the american consulate made his diagnosis en route wound a handkerchief round the negligible wound rolled down his sleeve and forgot it altogether in the joys of picturing to himself hobbs in the act of opening the satchel in expectation of finding therein the gladstone bag at the consulate door he paid off the driver and dismissed him the fiacre had served his purpose and he could find his way to the terminus hotel at infinitely less expense he had a considerably harder task before him as he ascended the steps to the consular doorway knocked and made known the nature of his errand no malicious destiny could have timed the hour of his call more appositely the consul was at home and at the disposal of his fellow-citizens within bounds in the course of thirty minutes or so kirkwood emerged with dignity from the consulate his face crimsoned to the hair his soul smarting with shame and humiliation and left an amused official representative of his country's government with the impression of having been entertained to the point of ennui by an exceptionally clumsy but pertinacious liar for the better part of the succeeding hour kirkwood circumnavigated the neighbourhood of the steamer pier and the terminus hotel striving to render himself as inconspicuous as he felt insignificant and keenly on the alert for any sign or news of hobbs in this pursuit he was pleasantly disappointed at noon precisely his suspense grown too onerous for his strength of will throwing caution and their understanding to the winds he walked boldly into the terminus and inquired for miss calendar the assurance he received that she was in safety under its roof did not deter him from sending up his name 
and asking her to receive him in the public lounge. He required the testimony of his senses to convince him that no harm had come to her in the long hour and a half that had elapsed since their separation. Woman-like, she kept him waiting. Alone in the public rooms of the hotel, he suffered excruciating torments. How was he to know that Calendar had not arrived and found his way to her? When at length she appeared on the threshold of the apartment, bringing with her the travelling bag, and looking wonderfully the better for her ninety minutes of complete repose and privacy, the relief he experienced was so intense that he remained transfixed in the middle of the floor, momentarily able neither to speak nor to move. On her part, so fagged and distraught did he seem, that at sight of his careworn countenance, she hurried to him with outstretched, compassionate hands and a low, pitiful cry of concern. Forgetful entirely of that which he himself had forgotten, the emotion she had betrayed on parting. Oh, nothing wrong, he hastened to reassure her, with a sorry ghost of his familiar grin. Only I have lost Hobbs and the satchel with your things, and there's no sign yet of Mr. Callender. We can feel pretty comfortable now, and, and I thought it's time we had something like a meal. The narrative of his adventure, which he delivered over their déjeuner à la fourchée, contained no mention either of his rebuff at the American consulate, or the scratch he had sustained during Hobbs' murderous assault. The one could not concern her, the other would seem but a bid for her sympathy. He counted it a fortunate thing that the mate's knife had been keen enough to penetrate the cloth of his sleeve without tearing it. The slit it had left was barely noticeable, and he purposely diverted the girl with flashes of humorous description, so that they discussed both meal and episode in a mood of wholesome merriment. It was concluded all too soon for the taste of either, by the waiter's announcement that the steamer was on the point of sailing. Outwardly composed, inwardly quaking, they boarded the packet, meeting with no misadventure whatever. If we are to accept the circumstance that, when the restaurant bill was settled, and the girl had punctiliously surrendered his change with the tickets, Kirkwood found himself in possession of precisely one franc and twenty centimes. He groaned in spirit to think how differently he might have been fixed, had he not, in his infatuated spirit of honesty, been so anxious to give Calendar more than ample value for his money. An inexorable anxiety held them both near the gangway, until it was cast off, and the boat began to draw away from the pier. Then, and not till then, did an unimpressive, small figure of a man detach itself from the shield of a pile of luggage and advance to the pier-head. No second glance was needed to identify Mr. Hobbs, and until the perspective dwarfed him indistinguishably, he was to be seen alternately waving Kirkwood ironic farewell and blowing violent kisses to Miss Callender from the tips of his soiled fingers. So he had escaped to rest at first by turns indignant and relieved to realise that thereafter they were to move in scenes in which his hateful shadow would not form an essentially component part subsequently kirkwood fell a prey to prophetic terrors it was not alone fear of retribution that had induced hobbs to relinquish his persecution or so kirkwood became convinced if the mate's calculation had allowed for them the least fraction of a chance to escape apprehension on the farthest shores of the channel nor fears nor threats would have prevented him from sailing with the fugitives far from having left danger behind them on the continent kirkwood believed in his secret heart that they were but flying to encounter it beneath the smoky pall of london end of chapter sixteen part two recording by michelle eaton